There's a Croatia-born theologian named Miroslav Volf who once taught that wrath and anger and judgment were beneath God. That is, until he lived through the horrors of ethnic strife in what is the former Yugoslavia. He came to realize that his view of God had been too low. He writes this, quote, I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was a casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed. My people shelled day in and day out. Some of them brutalized beyond imagination. And I could not imagine God not being angry. He continues, Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How did God react to the carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrators' basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. He concludes with this sentence, God is wrathful because God is love. And perhaps that's what we need from our study in the book of Revelation the most, is a return to the high view of God. A return to this incredible being, this incredible, eternal, self-sufficient being called God. Where is history headed in light of God's purposes? And in particular, where is it headed in relation to God's interaction with people? I mean, if you go all the way back, Genesis chapter 1, at creation, all is good. There's harmony between God and among God's creatures. Then sin enters, Genesis chapter 3. And it takes a death grip on all of creation. Death grip is what a crocodile does to an unsuspecting gazelle by the river's edge. It takes it, it twists it, it pulls it under. That is exactly what sin did in the garden. And every relationship was affected. Our relationship with God, our relationship with one another, husbands' relationships with wives, children's relationships with parents and parents with children. So where, where is all this going in the history of the nations? Well, the results of human rebellion against God's reign and the penalty or the consequences of sin are devastating. But we're coming up to a point, and it's one verse after where Rob stopped this morning, where this is what the heavenly voices proclaim. Just listen to this, because this is where we're moving towards. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Matter of fact, in the midst of that seventh trumpet that blows and, and introduces the bold judgments, they will again say, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. 
You know, this is what Jesus taught. This is a continuation of the very thing Jesus taught. If you ever think about what did Jesus teach most about, if you actually take the words of Christ from the gospel, sort of extract them, what did he teach the most about? It wasn't finances. Though he, though he teaches a lot about finances. It wasn't parenting. Though parenting is very important. What Jesus taught most about was the kingdom of God. Listen to what he says in Mark chapter 1. After John the Baptist was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Okay, what does that look like when Jesus proclaims the gospel? He is the gospel, but what does it look like when he comes and proclaims the gospel? Listen, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And our response to that should be what? Well, he's going to tell you, repent and believe the gospel. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus said to them, I must preach the good news, that's gospel, of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Matthew records this in Matthew chapter 9. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That is why these heavenly voices say the gospel of our Lord is here. If you think about kingdom of God, it's an incredible topic in scriptures, but a kingdom has four basic elements. It has a king, a supreme ruler. It has kingdom territory, a specific location with definite boundaries. It has subjects or kingdom citizens, and it has laws and a form of government through which the sovereign or the king will exercise his rule. In our text this morning, we're going to see this. God's dominion and this coming kingdom and the importance of these two things. And this is what you're going to see in, in chapter 10 through half of chapter 11. The importance of God's word and witness. So if we, would, if we were to give this sermon a title, it would simply be word and witness. Now, like chapter 7, chapter 10 functions as an interlude. Again, here are the pictures. John eats. He actually takes and eats a scroll in his vision. This is happening. And then in chapter 11, two witnesses arrive. Okay, and, and all these descriptions are surrounding these two pictures. But there are three terms in chapter 10, verse 1, to chapter, 9, to, chapter, to chapter 11, verse 14, for prophetic activity. Those three terms are used five different times to highlight God's word and witness. As we, as we move into this, here, here's sort of the big idea I want us to take away from this, because you've got incredibly intelligent and good men that have a variety of views on these two chapters. But here's, here's what we must agree on. It is the witnessing church that is successful in God's eyes. The witnessing church, whether it be five people or 500 people, Success in God's eyes is a witnessing church making disciples and God will preserve his people from all satanic opposition as they proclaim the gospel until the kingdom comes. And that's long. You say, well, what do you mean preserved? Does that mean they won't die? No, martyrdom in Revelation is still success. He'll preserve you through that. Well, let's look at the first, the word, the eating of the little scroll. 
Look at verse one. I'm not going to read the entire thing again, but I do want us to get into this. John, in his vision, sees something. And I saw another mighty angel. Okay, the first mighty angel appeared in Revelation 5, verse 2. So when somebody said, he's the one that said, who is worthy to open the scroll? That was another mighty angel. There is a third mighty angel that appears in Revelation 18, verse 21. And in John's vision, he throws a huge boulder into the sea to symbolize the violent destruction of what is called in that chapter, Babylon. This is the second of three mighty angels. I do not believe this is Jesus Christ. Because he is called an angel here. He is one of the higher angels, I believe. But when he takes an oath, he actually raises his hand to heaven and he swears by the one who is eternal. It just it, it makes no sense that Jesus, who is eternal, would swear to God the Father. You see, he is surrounded. Look at verse one. I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. Perhaps a reminder of God's covenant. In the, so this is the interlude. You have incredible judgment. You have incredible bloodshed. You have the fury of God's wrath. And now an angel descends. He's wrapped in a cloud and he has a rainbow over his head. Let me just read to you. So what's going to come to mind is the same thing that we saw in the previous chapters. Um, these images out of Exodus with the plagues and God's protection of his people. Listen to Genesis 9 verse 13. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. So in the midst of the fury of God's wrath, it seems as though there are these two reminders that God remembers the agreement he has made with his people. Same thing with the legs like pillars of fire, probably referring to judgment Perhaps recalling again another image where that pillar of fire led the children of Israel through the wilderness. Now you have an open scroll. It's not a sealed scroll. The angel comes down and there is a portion that is already open. John does not have to open it. John is not worthy to open the scroll. But he is told to take it and he is told to eat it. Something that will be mentioned three different times. The angel has one foot on the sea. This is a colossal being in John's vision. He has one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. There is a ruler of this earth right now. Temporary. He's usurped God's authority. He is called the prince and the power of the air. But in this vision, what is coming with this word opened, there is this picture that God is the true sovereign and no part of the earth no part of the earth's inhabitants will escape the searching judgment of God. That means today, even on small clustered islands that have never heard the gospel, there is no place where God's word does not apply and where they will not be held accountable. Matter of fact, Revelation says, or Romans says in chapter 1, that the whole world will stand guilty before God. The angel's roaring voice like a lion is followed by seven thunders. And if you if you noticed, as Rob read, those thunders are intelligible speech. 
But John is told not, not to write those, right? To seal those up. Why? I mean, I, I love the way he's writing because there's so many times you need to pause and go, but wow, but why? Perhaps. As a reminder that you and I don't need to know everything to trust God. That you and I do not really need to know an exact timeline of the future to trust God right now. The next section, the angel makes an oath. Look at verse 5. And the angel, this is the second time he says this, whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. No more delay. The sixth trumpet is blown. The seventh is about to be blown by an angel. What does that mean? No more delay. It means we finally arrived at this point in Revelation to the eschaton. To the end of what is being communicated. No more delay. It involves a period of intense persecution as it arrives. Perhaps the bitter part of the scroll no more delay does not mean Christ will return at that point immediately. It's not as though the seventh trumpet is blown and Christ returns, but somehow that seventh trumpet inaugurates that soon return of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 7. Announced to his servants the prophets, right? But that in the days of the trumpet, in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God. Um, the, by the way, a mystery is something that was hidden and is now revealed. The mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. And this really calls to mind Amos chapter 3. Let me read verses 7 and 8 of Amos 3. For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, Amos says. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? So what you're, what you're seeing here in Revelation 10 and 11 is a continuation of everything that has happened from Genesis to Malachi. It is not something brand new. No, the prophets have been declaring these things, sure, in mystery form, but now it's being revealed. This is what the preachers were preaching. And even in those days. They were minimized. They were mocked. They were martyred. They were hated for the work they were called to do. Even in Jeremiah's day, other preachers hated Jeremiah. Jeremiah, you're such an embarrassment to us. These men were not externally successful. Most of these men did not have large crowds following them. But they were successful in God's eyes. Just as the witnessing church is the obedient church and is successful in God's eyes. So this is our hope. God who created this world will bring to pass everything that he has planned to accomplish. Ephesians chapter 1 mentions the mystery. Let me read Ephesians 1. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purposes, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And now this is being put forward to you in Revelation chapter 10. 
Look at verse 8. This is the third sort of main section in chapter 10. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. This is the third time we're told what? In this description. That these legs of fire of this colossal angel is standing one on land and one on sea. There is this dominion of nations and kings and peoples. And he says, you must still prophesy. You must still go. You must still preach. John's ministry is not yet complete. Eat the scroll. So we were talking about this passage on Wednesday and someone asked, did he literally eat the scroll? You know, this really calls to mind Ezekiel's commission in Ezekiel chapter 2. Let me read that to you. But you, son of man, talking to Ezekiel, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back. So on a scroll, if it's written on the front and the back, there is no room for you to add your own words. God has given the complete word that must be preached. And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. By the way, the two witnesses in Revelation 11 are going to be in sackcloth indicating that same thing that Ezekiel sees here. And he said to me, son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go back and speak to the house of Israel. So this is an image that we have seen before. And what John does, he takes this, what seems to be a smaller portion of the larger scroll, and he eats this portion. Perhaps it's the portion of the judgments about to be communicated. Perhaps it's the portion that introduces the end of the world, the bitter part, and the coming of a new heaven and a new earth, the sweet part. Perhaps it is the sweet gospel message still involving judgment, but then it leads to martyrdom, which would be bitter. I believe it's sweet because God's sovereign will is always for the benefit of his people. God's revealed will, even the trumpet judgments, are for the benefit of his people. God's children will be vindicated and rewarded for their obedience. Folks, that's sweet. Believers can rest assured that God has ordained these events and nothing can happen without his knowledge and will. Do you know in a world that is, that is pushing God out, in a world that is trying to convince our children there is no creator God, in a world that has had enough with his reign and his rule, isn't it sweet to know that God's in charge? But the longer you believe that and the more hostile the world becomes, it will lead to a bitter end for you, just like the two witnesses. Bitter because it will involve great suffering. 
bitter because it will include persecution and martyrdom. Bitter because our children will be made fun of for believing in Creator God. Bitter because of judgment. But for believers, it's the same bittersweet message as 1 Peter, where he says, suffering is the path to glory. It's a bittersweet message. So three points from this chapter before we move into chapter 11. The awesomeness of the angel. What do we learn from that? This colossal, incredible being. Standing on the sea and on the land. The Greeks used to try to uh, create that image. You know, there, there, are, there are stories of these, these large monuments built and even ships would have to sail under these statues to enter into a port. What is that communicating? Well, dominion and power, but you know, when I come away from reading that, this angel of that size and strength and glory, he's got a rainbow and he's wrapped in clouds and he speaks like a lion and then the thunders echo, which are intelligible speech. He worships God. He does the will of God. He bows before God. That's why I I would say in our culture, I believe we have too low of a view of God. That the angel is supposed to sort of shock us out of our low view that even this creature is created for the glory of God. The seven thunders reveal that some matters are not for us to know, at least not yet, but that we can obey God with the revelation that we have. The third point, God has given his people the sweet privilege of proclaiming his word, though that involves some bitterness, persecution, rejection, martyrdom, temptation, judgment, and judgment on others. And then I, I love that little phrase in chapter 10, there will be no more delay. You know, there is coming a day when the delay is over. What we've hoped for will be realized. All that we have believed in, lived for, looked forward to. All that will finally arrive. That's what we live for. That's what we're looking forward to. Let's look at chapter 11. The end of chapter 10 depicted John eating a scroll just as Ezekiel had eaten a scroll. And now, at the beginning of chapter 11, it depicts John measuring the temple just as Ezekiel watched the temple being measured in Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48. So you have this again, this continuity of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, into the New Testament or the New Covenant. Now, I'm going to make this point because we're not going to we're not going to jump off the cliff into the 27 different views on both the temple and the two witnesses. Regardless of what the temple is, whether it is a reference to the church or a reference to a newly built temple since the old temple was destroyed, and regardless of who the witnesses are, Here's the big idea again. It is the witnessing church that is successful in God's eyes. And God will preserve his people from all satanic opposition as they proclaim the gospel until the kingdom comes. God's word and witness go hand in hand. Listen to what Jesus taught on the, on the Mount of Olives. In Matthew 24:14. Jesus is sitting there. He can see Jerusalem. He can see the temple. He already warned them that not a stone would remain in place. He's prophesying to them. But then he says to his disciples this. And this gospel of the kingdom. There's that phrase again. Remember, go all the way back to the beginning. What did Jesus teach most about? The kingdom. With a king. 
with a sovereign, with a territory, with kingdom citizens, with laws. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Look at verse 1. And I was given a measuring rod like a staff, perhaps a reed. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. The temple may refer to the church. What it seems that John is doing is dividing the world as, as he's measuring the temple. And the word for temple is the same Greek word used for the holy of holies. It is the same word used in 1 Corinthians twice for believers, saints who are the temple of God. It seems what John is doing is dividing by measuring the world into holy ones, believers, and unbelievers here called the Gentiles or the outer court. The clothing of the two witnesses in sackcloth points to mourning, a heaviness or a bitterness or the grief of impending judgment upon the world. He says this, verse 3, I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will what? Remember, this is the word that is used five different places, forms of this same word. They will. What is the work they're going to do? Prophesy. But that's so old fashioned. That is so out of date. I mean, give me something that lifts the hairs on the back of my head, right? Some lights and smoke and mirrors. Try to compete with everything I've just watched and enjoyed for the last six days. No, the work they will do is prophesy. They're going to preach. Prophecy is the work they will do and it is the work that people will hate them for. So folks, when we as the church, I want you to listen to this. When we proclaim the exclusivity of Christ, that no one can go to the Father except through Jesus, because that's what Jesus taught. The world will hate us for that because they want other ways. They want more convenient ways, more comfortable ways. When we proclaim the holy standards of lifestyle that God puts forward in his word, people will hate us for that. When we preach God's word in contrast to society's definition of marriage and their acceptance of unbiblical lifestyles, we will be hated for holding fast to the word of God. These two witnesses will preach the word. They will prophesy. And the people will hate them for it. Do you not already see a precursor to that in the church today? Of what these two witnesses will face? Look at how he describes them in verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now an interesting connection the churches, the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, six times have already been called lampstands. And Zechariah combines these images 
the oil trees, the lamp that takes the oil and feeds to the main chamber and the spirit. And and Zechariah says um, in Zechariah, he combines these images and he says, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Probably one of the most striking images in verse five. If anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. Now, this brings to mind Jeremiah 514. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word, behold, I am making my words in your mouth a fire and this people would and the fire shall consume them. So regardless of what is happening, there is a power to the prophet's words, to to the prophecy that they are preaching. In verse six, it gives this picture of that they will have similar supernatural capabilities, just like as we're given to Moses and Elijah. If these are actual men. I believe it refers to Enoch and Elijah. Here's why. It's like the the one interesting exegetical note I'll throw out. Because Hebrews says this, as it is appointed unto men once to die. But after this, the judgment. There are two men from that time period, the Elijah Moses time period, who have never died. Enoch was just taken. There he was. Now he's not. And then Elijah went up in the chariot. Remember that? Okay, could this be supernaturally, these two men who have never died in providing this ministry. Here's what the two witnesses example. Faithful proclamation in the face of hostile opposition. Look at verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, they finish their witness, they complete their mission, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit, by the way, who... Who, who ordained the unlocking of the bottomless pit? God did by an angel that descended with the key. Remember that? The pit opens up. Okay. Out of that pit then, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically, symbolically is called Sodom. And Egypt, and you're supposed to call to mind when those two places are mentioned, the events that are recorded in God's word. You have a Pharaoh who was worshipped as God and he challenged the one true God. You have Sodom and all the events that surround that. And you have this supernatural blindness being struck on these men who were trying to take advantage of the, the men that were visiting Okay, you're supposed to call to mind those things, but it's called symbolically called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. Now, where was Jesus crucified? What city? Okay, just outside of Jerusalem. We would call it Jerusalem. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. These two witnesses had an effective ministry because they were faithful to God's commissioning. It's really odd, isn't it? This is a festal celebration. People are actually exchanging gifts. Why? 
because of a common hatred towards two witnesses that spoke God's word. But remember, we're going to keep coming back to this until we're done this book. This is not defeat because martyrdom is victory in the book of Revelation. Obedience to death is victory in the book of Revelation. Look at verse 11. We're moving here towards the end. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Why? Well, perhaps because they've been celebrating for these three and a half days and exchanging gifts. And this is such an awesome holiday. And all of a sudden they stand up. And they had already been a torment. And what? And we even disgrace their bodies by not burying them in almost every culture. It is a disgrace not to bury the dead. They stand up. And we're not shocked. Great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Do you see that glimpse of good news? The effect of a faithful witness. Yes, people are dying. That's the bitter part of the message. But many gave glory to the God of heaven. There's the sweet part of the message. What John outlines here is the function of the witnessing church. Its mission will be difficult. It will face hostile opposition. But its eventual triumph is sure. And we are called to join in God's mission to the world by proclaiming truth. It is the witnessing church. It is the disciple-making church. It is the faithful church that is successful in God's eyes. So let me ask you this morning. Are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Are you a follower, learner of Jesus? Is he your Lord? Have you submitted to his reign? The gospel is about the kingdom. Are you a kingdom citizen? When you read the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew chapter 5 to 7, and it's explaining kingdom citizens, this is what they look like. Are you that? And secondly, for those who are, are you making disciples? This is the peculiar, perhaps somewhat weird part about true disciples. They want to make other disciples. They want people to join them because there's a sweetness to the gospel message and a sweetness to what is ahead. We don't just kind of hide in a corner and keep it to ourselves. And here's, and here's the encouragement to those who have been bold. No one can harm you until your mission is complete. They can't. Not if you believe what you just saw in Revelation. And then verse 14. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. I want to close by praying together that if there are any in our midst who are not followers of Jesus Christ, not believers, they're not saved, they haven't bowed the knee to God as King and said, I am a sinner and I turn, I repent and I believe. 
That's what Jesus came preaching. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. We're going to close and pray for those here and those in our families that they would turn before it's too late. And secondly, let's pray that 2018 will be a great year of us obeying our Lord by making disciples. Let's pray that 2018, that that our 50-foot high baptistry would find great use. Not because we're Baptists, but because people are unashamedly saying, I am in union with Christ. By faith, I am I died and I'm buried and I'm risen in Christ. Let's pray that together. Let's pray.